Good to be in the house of the Lord today. I hope you had a wonderful Christmas. My name is Frank Wong. I'm one of the assistant pastors here. Uh, well, I guess the assistant pastor. Um, and uh, uh, with that, I hope you would turn with me to John chapter 1, verses uh, 16 to 18. We'll be finishing up our Advent series in the prologue of uh, the Gospel of John. A couple, a few things to say, actually. Um, first, uh, in the spirit of giving thanks, uh, you know, Dave Silvernail's not here. Uh, and so I get to give thanks for him because he would be mortified if I, he knew I was going to do this. Uh, second quick note of housekeeping. Um, I, I, on behalf of Tiffany uh, Motman, who is our director of, of nursery, as well as the children's ministry, um, Courtney Stein and the rest of the pastoral staff in the session are pleased to announce that we're going to be making a few changes to our nursery, um, sort of how it's all going to be structured. Currently, we have two nurseries, one for babies that are crawling around and one for walkers. Um, we're going to be condensing them into one room. We'll have two rings so that the little babies don't get trampled, of course. Um, but we're going to sort of condense that, which will help us lengthen our rotation. We won't have to have as many adults. And so hopefully that will be a blessing to all of you um, that serve at our nursery. It'll hopefully give you guys a little bit more of a break. But the thing that it enables us to do and the thing that makes me the most excited is that we get to have a nursing cry room, a dedicated nursing cry room. And so the, the room that used to have uh, the nursery will now uh, be dedicated for nursing mothers and for crying babies. We had that before, but not a lot of people knew about that. But now there'll be a dedicated room. So excited about this. And the best part about it is we are working really hard to make sure that we will have a feed, an audio feed in that room uh, for our mothers uh, that are nursing as well as for um, parents that have crying babies. So, you know, really excited to, to have that happen. Uh, hopefully it will be a blessing for you guys. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, we'll try something else out. But um, we're excited to, to do, this, uh, do this change and, and try it out. The last thing is sort of... Uh, more, much more personal um, news from our family um, and a somber one at that, and it will uh, sort of affect the sermon this morning. Sarah's grandfather passed on Friday. Um, and uh, I'm telling you really for two reasons. Um, first, so that you can be praying for Sarah and her family uh, as they mourn. And second, because, um, you know, I'll be talking a little bit about the comfort that we have in Christ as we deal with death at the end of our passage this morning. And it doesn't flow, like, obviously out of our passage, but um, I just wanted to give you a heads up. That's why I'm talking about death is because it's very real in our family's life uh, this morning. But uh, with all of that said, let's turn our attention to the Word of God. Our passage this morning is from... John chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. I'll actually be reading, starting at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This, is of, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. 
For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let us pray. Father God, uh, we have come before you again uh, to hear from you, to hear from your word. And Lord, as we look back on a year of 2018 where we have faithfully come to your word week after week, Lord, we ask that you would speak loudly um, to us, that we would be transformed by the consistent preaching of your word, that we would um, see and know you, that we would see and know the mercies that you have poured out upon us in our sin. And Lord, as we look, would you open our eyes to uh, the wonder of your gospel. And so, Lord, be with us now, we pray. Amen. So, um, you know, before we heard the news of Sarah's grandfather's passing, I had sort of structured the sermon, and I'm just going to sort of continue to go with it. And so this morning, we're going to start off with Secret Santa. So quick show of hands, because Dave's not here, and because I get to do this. Quick show of hands, how many of you guys have ever participated in Secret Santa? Okay, great. So those of you that did not raise your hand, here's what Secret Santa is. It's a sort of gifting arrangement between friends or coworkers, whereby people will be assigned an, uh, assigned a person to gift, but you don't know who has you. So you'll just end up getting gifts sort of anonymously, sort of in a lead up to Christmas. And it's, it's a lot of fun, and it's a lot of fun for primarily three reasons. First is, there's this just this magical anticipation where you're, you're just sort of walking around and you never know when a present for you might just sort of crop up. You like walk into your office in the morning, there might be a present sitting on your, on your desk. Or you walk out to your car after a long day and boom, your, your car is like gift wrapped and there's like a present sitting on the hood or something like that, okay? And so everywhere you go, you might turn a corner and there's, there might be a present waiting for you. And so there's just this like giddy, like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to get. It's going to be great. Um, and then the second thing is, there is this also this anticipation as you watch the person that you're gifting uh, for, watch as they discover these presents that you've left for them. It's a wondrous thing to watch, sort of all the, the gift that you've chosen for them, as well as uh, sort of all the elaborate planning that you've done to sort of surprise them with this present. It's fun to watch them um, enjoy that. And then there's also the, the, the joy and the bonding that comes from the revelation of who your secret Santa is. You're like, wow, you're the guy that keeps sending me these presents. Thank you so much. It's, it's been such a blessing to me. Thank you so much. It's great. And you, you sort of are able to enjoy that relationship. And, you know, throughout this season, there's, and if you're playing this game, you always get into conversations. Well, you know, what'd you get for Secret Santa? And how'd you get it? And do you know who your Secret Santa is? And those three questions, what did you get? How did you get it? And who, who had you are the sort of three questions that I want to use to sort of structure our look at our passage today. And these are the three questions that will help guide our look at our three verses today. So first, what did you get? What did you get? You get grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. 
This is where the passage sort of acts like uh, an application section for all that has come, come before. The great theological truths that we've been looking at in the previous verses in the previous weeks, like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's a soaring, amazing theological truth. And that's sort of out there. But now, these verses, these theological truths are being applied directly to believers. For we have received, is the wording, right? The question is, what, is you ha- what have you received? And the answer is, we have received from his fullness. Look with me at verse 16. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And so we've received from his fullness, and we've received grace upon grace. So what is the fullness that John is talking about? If we go back to verse 14, um, we'll find it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of truth and grace. So the fullness that John is talking about is the fact that the word is absolutely chock full of grace and truth. And if you recall, Dr. Silvernail told us last week that this phrase, grace and truth, is John's way of recalling the Old Testament words hesed and met. And hesed is the, the Hebrew word that you would use for covenantal love, um, a steadfast love and a mercy, and met is, is faithfulness and, uh, tr- and truth. And so what's in view is not only this idea that the word is simply full of gracious, graciousness and truth, but what's included is in the whole history of God's faithfulness to his people. So all the years that have come by in the Old Testament, all the promises that were made to him, all the covenant love that the Lord has poured out upon his people, from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David, all of those promises are included in God's hesed, God's covenant love to his people, his faithfulness to his people. And so there's a lot that sort of goes into this idea of grace and truth. And so think about that. You know, from that covenantal love, all of that love, from that we have received what? Grace upon grace. Now, the Greek here in John is a little tricky. It's pretty straightforward, but a little tricky. Okay, because you actually get grace and then a conjunction and then grace. And so the force of the expression grace upon grace depends on the way that you translate that one conjunction, right? And so um, there's actually two big camps on how you translate this conjunction. The ESV sort of comes up with this idea of grace upon grace. It's sort of an addition. You, you sort of see grace and then you get more grace added upon you. And then what's the picture that is being painted? Well, you just get this giant heap of grace that you just grace upon grace and riches upon riches. And so if you remember um, the the old animated TV show DuckTales, there was Scrooge McDuck with his giant vault of, like, coins. And what he would do is he would go in and he would just, like, sort of swim in his money, right? And for those of you that are way too young for that, think smog from like The Hobbit, and he's just covered in like gold. And that's the kind of picture that you get, just sort of heaps of grace upon grace upon grace. And it just the abundance is amazing. And it's totally true, right? Like we, we, we hear in Ephesians 1, 
that we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And there we get sort of this running list of blessings that we have in him. Um, sort of, uh, and quick aside, you know, blessings that we receive from him are definitely grace because none of it we, re- we deserve because we're all sinners and so we all don't deserve anything but wrath. And so anything we get besides wrath is definitely grace. So what do we get? We get election. We've been chosen before the foundation of the world. We are adopted as sons. We have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins, and we have an inheritance in Christ. So we have a lot in Christ. So that's the ESV view. The NIV view um, is actually the one that I'm going to actually end up with. And it's one of the few times I'll end up siding with the NIV over the ESV. But um, the NIV would translate the end of verse 16 this way, out Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. So a grace in place of already uh, grace in place of grace already given. And so the picture that we get is actually a picture of a grace that just keeps coming, is relentless and steadfast. It's a replacement or a fulfillment. The picture is instead of heaps of grace showered down, rather a new layer of grace that replaces the grace that we have seen before. I'm going to go with this view because of verse 17, which we'll see, which will tell us how this grace upon grace works, how we get this grace. So how did you get that present, right? And so it's a grace that replaces grace, grace that replaces grace. And verse 17 explains what verse 16 is talking about. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John is saying something profoundly important. He's laying out for the early church the relationship between the law and the gospel. And John reminded the early church that the law was a grace too. Remember, Paul, who had been running around sort of telling, speaking about God and writing a ton of books in the Bible, he had often put the law and the gospel as sort of contrasting ideas. But even that is a misconception of what Paul is talking about, because Paul is sort of only putting them on opposing sides for the purposes of justifying yourself before God. There can be no merit under the law. All salvation has to come through grace given by God. And so he sort of poo-poos the law in that particular way, where people, Pharisees, were trying to sort of justify themselves, saying, look at me, I follow all the rules, I haven't broken any of them, I'm good. But that's just simply not true. You know, Paul is clear about his view on the law in Romans chapter 7, verses 8 to 12. And I'll read it real quick. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing in an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And so we can see that Paul understands the law is a gracious thing that the Lord has given to us. Remember that the, law, the Lord didn't have to give us the law. In fact, we don't deserve to receive the law because the law does some really great things for us. 
some things that we need in order to really understand what's really going on. And so we come to sort of three big things that the law does that are good for us, sort of three uses of the law, so to speak. The first is that it reveals human sinfulness. You know, this is how the law condemning us is a good thing. I just finished talking um, in Mark chapter 7 about um, legalism and Phariseeism in Sunday school not an hour ago. And the law is there to condemn us. It shows us that, in fact, we can't keep everything. That, in fact, the law is not meant to say, hey, if you don't break all these things, you're good. In fact, it's there to say, hey, don't you see that you just can't measure up? And in fact, the problem isn't, the, the way of thinking isn't, I can just, if I just stay clean and don't break any rules and I don't get dirty, I'm good. Really, the thinking is, I am dirty and the law shows me that I'm dirty. Okay? And so, that, so it reveals human sinfulness, and it shows us that we have a problem, and you know, the first step in fixing a problem is acknowledging that we have one. And so the law does that for us. It also restrains evil. It gives consequences for when you break the law, and so it restrains evil. And the third thing it does is that it tells us what pleases God. It reveals a lot about God's character when we understand what pleases him, what is acceptable to him as well also tells us a lot about him, about what he doesn't like, what displeases him. And so what John wants us to understand is that the grace that comes through Jesus Christ isn't quite new, okay? There has been grace that has been given beforehand. It's rather a continuation, a fulfillment, a replacement of grace that had come before. It is the fullness of all the grace and all the promises that had come before. And so taking it all together, verses 16 and 17, what we receive is the fullness of grace and truth in Christ. That is the ultimate culmination of God's covenant love and faithfulness to us. That Jesus is the pinnacle of everything. Jesus is the pinnacle of all of history, of all of God's covenant faithfulness to, to us and his people throughout the ages. But at the end of the day, there's a big question that needs to be answered. Why? Why do we receive grace and truth? At its core, grace is something sort of irrational. It doesn't really make sense. Because why should we do something for, some, for somebody that doesn't deserve it? Why should God give us grace when we deserve wrath? Why should, we, why should he do it? And I think it comes down to who God is and who we are to God, which brings us to the third question from Secret Santa, who had you? And the answer, of course, is that God does. So who had you? God does. And so the problem that we all have is summarized in the first half of verse 18. No one has ever seen God. Well, no one could see God because his glory is too great and we are far too sinful. And we're talking about that Shekinah glory that Dr. Dave talked about last week. 
that wrapped Mount Sinai in fire and clouds back in Exodus. And it was so powerful that if you even touched the mountain, you would die because the glory would break out against you. It's the same glory that would fill the Holy of Holies in the temple. And there the high priest would have to go through sort of elaborate ceremonies to make himself ceremonially clean to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people and before the Ark of the Covenant. And even then, he would only be able to go in once a year. And even after all those ceremonial, ceremonial sort of cleansings, they would tie a rope around his legs so in case like the Lord just struck him down because he was sinful, uh, they could sort of drag him out of the Holy of Holies, right? It's the same glory that God said to Moses who asked him, hey, can I see your glory? God's like, yeah, you don't want that. If you want to see my glory, what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to like stick you in a rock, put my hand over you, walk by you, and then after I've walked by, maybe you can like catch a glimpse of my back. Because anything more and you'd be dead, dead as a doornail. And so the issue is that we can't be in the presence of God. That is the defining issue of our humanity, is that we cannot be in God's presence because we are sinful. We can't be intimate with him. And so God, the only God, that is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus Christ, who is at the Father's side, he did something about it. And if we go back to Ephesians 1, we would get this doctrine of election. It's sort of kind of controversial to some people, but it says something amazing, that before the foundations of the world, God chose us. He chose us. He had us. Far before we even existed, he chose us, even knowing that we would be sinners. And so that grace, that choosing grace, that saving grace is all the more remarkable because of it. And so the whole purpose behind becoming flesh, dwelling among us, and giving us all this grace that fulfills all of his promises in ages past is to really do that third use of the law that I talked about earlier. It is to reveal God to us, to bring us into his presence. The only God, Jesus Christ, who is at the Father's side, he has made the invisible God, the God who is dangerous to us, God that we cannot even be in his presence, that God he has made known. And that's the whole reason for this big story that John is talking about, the restoration of intimacy between God and man. And Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For now I know in part. Then when, I, when I'm in heaven, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The desire to know and be known is the whole reason why we have relationships with each other. We have a burning desire to know completely and to be known completely, to have no barriers, to have no secrets. There's a reason why we love stories that cap, why we love love stories why they capture our imaginations, and why love makes us do crazy things, because we want to be known. And Jesus has made God known to us. 
Hebrews 1, 2 says, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And so John, by emphasizing the deity of Christ, saying that he is the only God who is at the Father's side, he's encapsulating the wonder and grace of the incarnation. The fact that God has become one of us in the person of Jesus that God has come down to be one of us so that he might live the perfect life demanded by the law and then lay down that life for us on the cross and then take it back up in resurrection life. Think about how gracious that is, that God would condescend to take on flesh, that he would come down to be one of us, to suffer all the hardships of life, to suffer the worst death imaginable and then some because he's suffering the wrath that he doesn't deserve. and to do it simply so that we would know him. That's grace because he didn't have to do it. He didn't need to do it. In fact, he probably shouldn't have done it, but he did. You know, this Greek word at the end, this making known word, is the word that we get, is the root word uh, of our word exegesis. You could say that he has declared him. You could also that, say that Jesus is the sort of ultimate disclosure of God, that he is the ultimate revelation of God. It's why we, as Christians, make a big deal about Jesus. Everything revolves around him. Everything is about becoming closer to him. And quite simply, this faith that we have is built on the idea that Jesus Christ has us. He's the one gifting to us. Gifts around every corner. Mercies new every morning. He's the one pursuing new ways to bless us and to reveal his love to us. And when everything is revealed, when we are finally in his presence, at the end of days, our joy will be made complete not because we're in heaven and because we have eternal life and because we have this awesome new resurrection body and because there won't be any sin or because there won't be any sickness. No, the reason why our joy will be made complete is because we are with him. You know, as I was thinking about how I wanted to love my wife and my in-laws well this morning in light of um, Sarah's grandfather passing, I couldn't help but think that it's fitting that we take some time to contemplate the comforts that John offers to us in this passage. You know, this book was written sort of toward the end of John's life. Um, and so he would have likely had uh, seen a number of persecutions of the church and the threat of persecution would have loomed large over the church. And so how better to encourage that ever-growing uh, and fledgling church, that new early church, than to remind them of what they have in Jesus Christ, that they have God himself with them, and, to, and to, encur to encourage them to hear how far God will go for them, the great lengths that he has gone to reveal us 
uh, revealed to us his son and, who, and himself. And so we end up returning to Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, question one, what is thy only comfort in life and in death? That I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, the Gospel of John was written so that we might believe. He says that in John 20, 31. And by believing, you may have life in his name. And this life, would have, uh, this life would have been a sort of saving resurrection life that brings with it the promise of eternal life. The idea that we have a crucified Savior who yet lives is a powerful comfort to those facing death and mourning uh, the loved ones lost to death. And John would later record Jesus' words to Martha in chapter 11. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This man, Jesus, is the resurrection and the life. And he has come to earth to be a man, to be with us, to make God's covenantal, faithful love known to me and to you. Our hopes for ourselves and for our loved ones are in the hands of the man who came when he didn't have to. They're in the hands of the man who was full of grace and truth and displayed them on the cross. Even for those that we don't know were Christians at the time of death, at the time of death, even, to know, even if we don't know if they're Christians, our hope lies with our good and faithful Savior. We don't know what he might have done in their hearts. And so we have that sliver of hope, however faint. It might even just be wishful thinking, but maybe the Lord did something amazing. After all, what he did to come was amazing. And what he did on the cross was pretty amazing. And so as we go into 2019, there is, of course, the encouragement to put your faith in Christ. If you're a Christian, 2019 should be about continuing to repent and believe and give your all to the Lord Jesus. As Tom said so eloquently earlier, our, our goal is to be about Jesus, not to be less, less about sinning, less about whatever. Our goal is to love Jesus more and everything else will follow. And if you're not a Christian, we are so glad that you're here with us this morning. There's still time in 2018 to make it the year that you come to know the fullness of God's grace to you in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus has come to die for you and your sins. And if you won't do it now, we ask that you be certain of doing that in 2019. And this is the grace of the word to you. The Lord Jesus Christ has you. Let's pray. Father, as we look back on 2018, we have come uh, so far in your grace and your mercy. We have been sustained through yet another year. 
And Lord, there are so many things that uh, grieve us that we wish didn't happen. But Lord, we are comforted by the thought that you have us and that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, in the coming year, we ask that you would be the singular focus of our lives, that we would chase after you um, with a laser focus, that we would be unwavering in our pursuit of you. And Lord, would you remind us that before all of our efforts, before uh, we were even born, you had us, and that you did amazing things, extraordinary things. You went to extraordinary lengths so that you may have us forever. Lord, would we rest in the wonder of that gospel, the wonder of all that you have done for us in and through Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. And now hear the benediction from Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. Have a happy new year. We'll see you next week.